Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future. Today, I had the great pleasure of speaking to Adam Lowry, the co-founder and CEO of Ripple Foods, a dairy alternative company. Adam is set to speak at the Future Food Tech Summit in San Francisco next month on a panel discussing new frontiers for plant-based foods. But plant-based dairy and Ripple is not his first foray in sustainable business. A climate scientist by training, Adam co-founded the sustainable cleaning products business, Method. I know I use those in my home, so it was really exciting to talk to him. Both Ripple and Method are certified B Corps, and Adam has contributed several innovations to the sustainable business space, including the first 100% post-consumer recycled and recyclable PET packaging, the first packaging made from ocean plastic, and several new green chemistries. Considering he's worked in and around sustainability for so long, Adam is not combative in his approach to this industry where others can be, and it's really refreshing. He doesn't claim his company will save the world, and he's also a flexitarian on occasion. We talk about the contrast between launching a cleaning products business and a food business, why food was the next step for him, the key mistakes and lessons learned from Method, and how he and his colleagues chose the pea as the key ingredient for their products. I'm slightly kicking myself that we didn't manage to get onto the topic of packaging, as it's an area of innovation that's finally gathering pace in the agri-food tech industry, but I'm sure you'll still hear plenty of interesting nuggets to make it worth the listen. And if you want to see Adam speak at Future Food Tech, where I will be myself, I've included details in the show notes. Thank you so much, Adam, for speaking to me today. Well, thanks for having me. I have to thank the team at Rethink, who are organising the Future Food Tech conference in San Francisco next month for uh, facilitating this. Yeah, thanks to them. So where are you today and what did you have for breakfast? (laughs) I'm in Minneapolis this morning getting ready to meet with Target. And for breakfast, I went to Caribou Coffee and I had a large coffee and I had a bagel with egg whites, spinach, and mushrooms on it. Oh, that sounds good. Is that... Yeah, it was delicious. <laughs> yeah. Is that your typical breakfast or do you usually go for something a bit more simple? Yeah, usually more simple. I mean, when I'm at home, it's often, you know, oatmeal with some, some fruit in it. It's pretty boring. I try to eat healthfully and, uh, you know, it's, it's not all that interesting, but, uh, but I like it. And how would you describe your food preferences? Are you plant-based? Are you dairy-free? Yeah, I'm mostly plant-based. I'm essentially vegan plus fish. I did eat egg whites this morning, but um, so I guess that's neither of those. But, you know, I I flex here and there, but I I generally don't eat meat uh, or dairy. And when did you make a switch from not eating meat or dairy? You know, I, I haven't had dairy really for a long time. Um, now I'm not like religious about it. You know, if there's a tiny bit of dairy and something that, you know, is out at a restaurant, it's, it's not like I have to avoid it like completely altogether, but I'll basically avoid dairy. Um, and that's been for, for a long time. Um, I stopped eating meat altogether a couple of years ago. So, uh, you and your friend, Eric Ryan founded Method Products a few years ago now, those fantastic Mm -hmm. eco-friendly cleaning products. What then took you into the food space? Yeah, it was actually a few decades now. Um, I'm sorry to admit. <laughs> but uh, yeah, what took me into the food space was really impact. So uh, my background, I, I actually started my career as a climate scientist 
And it was the frustrations of trying to be a climate scientist in America that led me to start Method uh, around this idea of how do we use business as a way to create social and environmental benefits. And so Method was always about impact from day one. And as things went on, I got really interested in the food space because there are even larger and more important impacts, both environmentally and from a human health and nutrition standpoint, that uh, are obviously associated with the food sector. How does it differ as an industry to launch a startup into? Well, I think that there are some things in the food industry that you really have to dot your I's and cross your T's on even more so than in a non-refrigerated, non, not like a non-food product, because you're talking about things that people are, are eating, they're putting in their bodies. So the aspects of food safety and food quality are, are absolutely paramount and need to be done with the utmost of rigor. And not that we didn't do similar types of things on the method business, but it's, you know, it's sort of another level. Um, and you have to build the, the capabilities in the team in order to do that stuff the right way. And how would you compare the fundraising process between Method and Ripple? I think I read somewhere that you were raising your Series A just after uh, 9-11. And so I think it sounded like it was a pretty tricky time. Have you had similar challenges with raising for Ripple? Uh, we haven't. And that's really a function of a couple of things. Um, really, the market has changed uh, dramatically in the last 20 years it's been. Uh, since we raised our first money for Method. Uh, and then also having uh, success under your belt really opens a lot of doors. Um, and so being able to point to the Method business and talk about some of the commonalities between that business and what we were trying to do with Ripple Foods, as well as talk about some of the mistakes we made, what we learned from those and how we're going to do it differently going forward, made the fundraising process a little bit easier with Ripple Foods. What were some of those mistakes? Oh, how much time do we have? <laughs> Just pick maybe a cut your top top two mistakes. Yeah, I mean, I think the big one that we made with Method was that we extended the business too broadly too quickly. So we had had some initial success with our initial product lines and some of our customers, our retailers, as well as our consumers, the people that enjoy our products, really wanted to see lots and lots of new and different things from Method. They kind of loved what the brand was doing and uh, the product experience and said, you know, I want you over here and I want you over there. And we we didn't chase them all, but we, we did go to, into several different sectors. We were in laundry and cleaning and we were actually making sort of floor care, hard goods and soft goods. And we were in air care and, and home fragrancing. And uh, that was all right up, leading right up to uh, the Great Recession. The Great Recession took a lot of discretionary purchases and really kind of hurt those categories. And as a premium player within those categories, we got hurt, you know, sort of even more. And we had to make uh, a very serious adjustment to the business. We had to shrink the business by about 30%. We laid off about a quarter of our staff and we had to retrench and build, you know, from our core back up. And, you know, ultimately we did that successfully, but it was an enormously painful mistake. So the learning from that is don't spread yourself too thin in terms of having too many different products. Yeah, and try to try to grow smartly. And, you know, the key there is, you know, not too conservative, not too, you know, reckless on the growth and try to find the right balance between driving a lot of growth in the business, but growing in a smart way where you're uh, driving growth into your core items and building your core brand proposition, things like that. I mean, this is quite good timing that we're having this conversation because I think you launched 
your ice cream product last week. Is that right? Yes, we did. Fantastic. Can't wait to try it. Super excited about that. It's a fantastic product. But you do actually have quite a lot of products here. I'm looking at your website now and you have milk products. Obviously, that was your first product. You have products for kids. You have superfoods, milk. You have half Mm -hmm. and half. You have yogurt, sour cream, and obviously ice cream now. So how did you choose which products to launch next? Yeah, the brand proposition of Ripple Foods is really dairy-free as it should be, which it should have all of the nutrition or better than dairy uh, without any of the downsides of dairy. Uh, and, and that's actually not the way the category historically has been. You know, without going into too much detail, most of the non-dairy category has been very sort of thin, watery, chalky, and actually doesn't contain any protein, which is the primary nutrition of dairy. <laughs> and so we've sort of reinvented that. And there's a technology that, that backs that up is the reason why we're able to do that really well. And so what we want to do is want to build the Ripple brand as a brand across the dairy regimen. So think milk, yogurt, cheese, ice cream, that, that, those types of products. That's the Ripple sandbox. Um, hopefully we're making decisions correctly about how quickly to go broad versus deep. And absolutely, we have launched some exciting new products recently. Um, and that's really based off of the success of our core items and you know what we believe is our ability to, to start to grow the business in new areas. So how did you come up with your recipe and how did you come to choose pea as your key ingredient? The only reason we use peas really is it's a highly sustainable source of protein Uh, that isn't soy. Soy sort of has a bad reputation, particularly within the dairy alternative space. One, because soy milks historically have kind of tasted a lot like soy. Um, And another for a reason that's not really a great reason, it's um, people are concerned about phytoestrogens in soy. And, you know, without going into science, you can't really eat enough soy to have an estrogenic effect. But nonetheless, a lot of consumers are sort of avoiding soy for that reason. So pea is uh, an available source. It's a very sustainable source. Obviously, it's a legume. It doesn't need to be fertilizer. Uh, And so we we pick pea for that reason. But Ripple is actually uh, feedstock, feedstock agnostic. So what makes Ripple unique is not that we... You, that we make a milk out of peas. Um, it's that we make the most highly pure plant protein anywhere in the world. Uh, right now we make it from peas, but we can make it from other things like soy and sunflower. Uh, and highly pure protein has no taste. And so that's how you're able to create, a, we are able to create a milk product that has all of the protein nutrition of dairy and doesn't taste uh, planty the way traditionally a soy milk would, or or some of the some of the brands that have copied us that have used pea protein in an almond milk, for example, uh, taste they taste very planty. So, what is the IP there then? Is it around that process of extracting the protein? Exactly. Yeah. So when when you get a typical plant protein isolate, it's about eighty percent protein and about twenty percent other stuff. What that other stuff is are generally small molecules. Proteins are really big. They're small molecules that are bound to the protein. And they're things like tannins. You know, tannin is what makes red wine or coffee bitter. And so it's those small molecules that actually carry the the sort of characteristic plant flavors. Um, And that's what we're able to extract the protein without, with our protein we call riptine, with the riptine uh, process. Uh, and so we have, uh, and, and protein itself, because of the, the huge size of those 
macromolecules actually doesn't have any taste at all. So if it's pure, it has no flavor. There's this really interesting dichotomy at the moment in the food industry where there's been this big movement towards whole foods, little processing, and so on, and, you know, low-tech. Um, and then on the flip side, they're in this, you know, livestock industry alternative uh, space in which you are, consumers seem to be okay with consuming uh, quite highly processed products, thinking about some of the plant-based burgers, but it also sounds like that pea protein is going through quite the process. And I'm interested in knowing what you think about that dynamic, but also, you know, thinking about the nutrition, how how can we be sure that these kind of extracted isolates as such have the same nutritional benefit as they would within a whole food? Is there anything around having them within a whole food that makes them more nutritionally available to humans or? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, I think on one hand, you've got consumers who really want to kind of look towards the past, I'll say in sort of more traditional ways of food and farming as a way to, you know, build trust in their food. And on the other hand, you also have consumers that are looking for what's new and different and is interesting with food. And often, they're the exact same consumers, <laughs> um, just making decisions in different ways for different categories. You know, with respect to the dairy alternative space, so if you want to make a milk out of plants, so obviously you're making sort of a milk analog. And so in order to do that, um, you're putting together protein, fat, and, and, and carbohydrate essentially in sort of reasonably equal proportion to a dairy milk. And so every plant-based milk is one that is, you know, quote unquote, has some processing uh, associated with it. You know, there is the option, you know, you can make a nut milk at home by grinding up almonds and putting them through a strainer and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but what you're going to end up with there is something that's A, super expensive, and B, isn't really going to work very well as a milk product because it separates. And so some people do that, but the vast majority of people in the non-dairy space are looking for a milk out analog that has functionality. Now, to your question about is there anything missing versus, you know, in a whole food versus a dairy alternative product, and, and, and the answer is they're, they're sort of different animals for different things. So pea, for example, contains fiber. And when we uh, extract protein from peas, um, a good amount of that fiber is left behind. Right. So you, you could say, hey, you, I would get more fiber by eating a pea than drinking a glass a ripple in whatever equal proportions. And you'd be absolutely right. It's also true that ripple uh, milk contains some really healthy fats like omega-3s um, and actually balances omega-3, 6, and 9. And that's actually something you won't get from eating a pea. And so I think it's you know, not an either or, but sort of an and in that in the category that we're in, which is alternative plant-based alternatives to dairy, we're producing products with the best nutrition and taste that you know, we think of any in the category. And that doesn't mean that people shouldn't also eat whole foods. Whole foods are great for you and generally are just in different parts of your diet, depending on what those preferences are. Okay, we're going to mix things up a bit now and move to a hot or not round. I'm going to read out some uh, food trends and you can tell me if you think they're hot or not. Okay. Starting with gluten-free. Mm, not. CBD. Hot. Insect ice cream. Not. <laughs> Not actually sure that's a trend yet. It might be at some point. Is that ice cream for insects? <laughs> tiny scoops of ice cream? Uh, uh. No, it's, it's insects made of ice cream. I mean, ice cream made of insects. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, what about meal kits? Uh, that that's not on the way out. Why is that? Oh well, I, I think it's sort of the hype cycle, right? You had tons and tons and tons of them, and now we're kind of getting to a steady state. I don't think they're going away, but um, uh, uh, there have been some challenges with certain um, companies in that space in terms of their sort of long-term sustainability, and uh, that category seems to be sort of shaking out. Do you use them at all? You know, we have in the past. Right now, my wife and I are not using any meal kits uh, right now, but we have used some of the brands in the past and 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 actually enjoyed several of them. Robotic cafes. I'm going to say not just because I'm old school and I really like interfacing with a person. Drinkable meals. Yeah, hot. But a bit, bit depressing. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, super depressing, right? Like... <laughs> Food is meant to be enjoyed and, and shared. And yeah, uh, it's it's not like, you know, nutrition in a bottle. But uh, it's definitely a hot category. Non-alcoholic drinks like those spirits. Very, very hot. Yeah. yeah. Very hot. Very hot. So on your website, I noticed that you say, we don't claim that making plant-based foods will save the world, but we think it can help. That is very refreshing. <laughs> uh, countless you. companies do say they're going to save the world with their alternative products. But I do have some questions around sourcing. Sure. So as you mentioned, peas are a legume and have some fantastic nitrogen fixing properties, uh, meaning that they you know, need the application of less potentially of less fertilizers. But obviously soy is also a legume and there have been ways of growing vast monocultures of soy around the globe, which do contribute to greenhouse gas emissions and many of the emissions that are associated with the livestock industry as well. Mm. Yeah, particularly when there's land use change involved with the cultivation of that soy. Yeah, Right, exactly. So I'm just wondering, as pea potentially expands and, and we hear, you know, about shortages around the supply of pea sometimes and as these alternatives grow, how can you control that supply chain and ensure that the way that that pea is being grown is following suitable and sustainable practices? Yeah, so I, th- I think there's a couple of things that that are advantageous to peas, which is beyond just the sort of legume and nitrogen fixing thing. I think that, um, number one, peas are often used as a rotational crop um, for other summer crops. So like in North America, often it's ro- rotated with wheat. Um, because of those nitrogen fixing properties. And so it's, it's grown in the spring and it's grown in the fall. And there are lots and lots of different types of rotational crops. And by and large, what my understanding of what's been happening as pea has gotten sort of more popular is just more farmers have decided to use pea as a rotational crop versus some of the other alternatives. And so, you know, to my knowledge, and I'm certainly not the world's expert on this, there's really not a land use change issue um, with the increased cultivation of peas. These are uh, farms that are, you know, already in cultivation, and there's just more of a percentage of them are kind of bringing in peas as, as a rotational crop. They also grow in uh, prairie regions. So uh, peas grow in the upper Midwest. Uh, we get our peas from sort of eastern Montana and southern uh, Saskatchewan. That's sort of the, the pea growing, you know, I guess the pea basket <laughs> of North America. And it's similar types of regions in, in Europe and, and so forth. And so these are not areas that are getting deforested. Uh, in order to cultivate these types of crops. So I think that there's there's sort of less of an issue there. 
in terms of how to make sure that we're doing this as sustainably as possible, obviously we want to be able to cultivate these peas in places where you don't have to irrigate um, because irrigation has a, a large carbon footprint associated with it. Um, and by and large, that's true. Um, most of the pea growing regions around, uh, at least around North America, uh, require very little, if any, irrigation and, and uh, external fertilizers. So um, I think we're starting from a good point. But as the industry develops, I think it's, uh, it's obviously important to make sure that we're continuing to maintain those more sustainable farming practices. So the alternative product category is getting increasingly crowded. And at Future Food Tech, you're going to be speaking on a fantastic panel amongst folks like Miyoko's Kitchen, Impossible Foods. Who else do you admire in, in your category? And that could be meat alternatives as well as dairy alternatives. Yeah, listen, I think the I think the burger guys, they get a lot of press, but I think they've done some really interesting things in getting really mainstream consumers excited and fired up about their products. Product. Um, they do a good job of making a, you know, making a burger. But what I think they've done a really nice job of is being able to build those um, experiences out in multiple touch points for consumers. So not just available at retail or at quick serve restaurants, but sort of penetrating in sort of a multi-channel way um, that allows people to kind of get that experience with their products. I think the other thing that's that sort of a nice thing about the burger space itself is that a burger gets served with generally with, you know, with a bun and cheese and, you know, lettuce and tomato and all that kind of stuff. And so that actually really helps the burger experience. Not to say that the, the plant-based burgers aren't good. I, I eat a ton of them. They're good, but there's a lot of other stuff that comes along with it. That's something that I, um, I think about in terms of uh, some of our product assortment with Ripple, you know, milk and yogurt and ice cream. Like, how do we create experiences for people to, to be able to experience our, our brand and our products as, you know, yogurt parfaits and uh, plant-based milkshakes and, you know, interesting formats that create a little bit more of a uh, memorable experience in the way that uh, people get introduced to our brand. So I think that's we're going to see a lot more of those types of partnerships in the future, and you know, hopefully Ripple can can show a few of those, uh, you know, ourselves. Yeah, because I saw that I think quite recently uh, Oatly, who which is the oat milk brand, has partnered with Starbucks to bring Oatly to to their stores. You know, are you looking at doing any of those retail partnerships? Yeah, we've got we've got several things in the works um, in in both the coffee and non coffee areas. You know, unfortunately, they're not public yet, but um, hopefully, we will be soon. So, finish off with quite a big question <laughs> for you. Okay, if you could change two or three things in the food system by twenty fifty, what would they be? And they can be realistic or moonshots as such. Uh, honestly, I would do one thing. I would make all contributions to politicians in the United States illegal and publicly fund all elections at the state and federal and local level. Now, that seems like a little bit of a flyer, um, but um, I do believe that campaign finance reform is the greatest environmental issue of our time. Because, you know, we, we unfortunately live in a, you know, let's take climate change as, as one sort of, uh, sort of co-example along with the food system and, you know, the U.S. farm bill. You know, right now we have incumbent businesses, which are generally not the most sustainable businesses in the world, but the ones that have been around for a while, 
they essentially control, you know, our political system and incumbency breeds a bias against progress. You know, just look at what little and actually how we're fighting against the uh, climate change um, in the United States. And there's a lot of really kind of messed up things in our in our food system and our food policy system in the United States that are just um, there are just things that are mandated by companies that that fund politicians to get elected and reelected. And we need to get over we need, we need to eliminate that. And once we do, then you're going to have policymakers serving the people, and then you're going to have a lot more sensible things that come through in terms of what we subsidize and what we don't within our food system. We'll be able to address things like climate change and so forth. So you asked a big question. I'm giving you a big, big answer. answer. Yes, that's fantastic. And I have to say, I agree. It's definitely something I've noticed since moving over from across the pond. Well, I'm really looking forward to uh, hopefully meeting you in San Francisco next month at Future yeah, Food Tech. To and thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.